Welcome to the Conditional Release Program, a podcast that delves into the netherworld of cults, crims, and con artists. We don't like these people on the shows. We believe the best way to expose them is to hold them up to a harsh light, point our index fingers in their general direction, and mock them mercilessly, take them down a peg or two until they cease to exist in any other form than the shit on our shoes. I'm Jack the Insider, otherwise known as Peter Hoisted for tax purposes. And I'm Joel Hill, and today we are looking at some of the worst criminals this country has mm. ever seen. Jack has investigated these men, he's studied them, he's brought in forensic psychologists to analyse them. They're notorious, they're murderous, and thankfully, they are all dead. Well, one is still with us, but we can all sleep soundly knowing he's safely locked away and will remain there for the rest of his life. Although he does have uh, that appeal before the courts, Mm. and and really, he could get out. Uh, (laughs) And I've said some terrible things about him. Maybe we should uh, take him off the list, Joe. Maybe we should take him off the list. Or maybe I'll I'll tell him you made me say all those awful things about him. And my advice to you is to upgrade your personal security and never leave home. We're in this together, Joel, which means uh, you're on your own if the shit is the shit, it's, shit, it's, shit it's the fan. Yeah, thanks, Jack. Uh, oh, I don't God. know if my home security cameras are going to save me from a trigger-happy lunatic <laughs> at my door, but we'll get on to these dangerous men in our deeper dive, one of whom might be knocking on my door soon with a gleam in his eye and some hot iron mm. in his hand. Well, you never know, Joel. You could get an OBE out of this. Uh, about fucking time. Everyone's been <laughs> hogging the initials for too long. But unfortunately, we don't have royal honours in this country anymore, Jack. Uh, not that OBE. The other OBE. One behind the ear. It's gangster oh. talk, Joel. For a a bit of, it means a bit of radical brain therapy makes you fall into a deep sleep forever and ever. But you and I can't go to sleep right now because the world is turning and every time it turns, something horrible happens (laughs) and we have to keep an eye on every bit of it so we can keep our listeners informed and thus safely quarantined from the ugliness. It's time for our weekly news. Lawsuits have uh, kicked off with a bang. Well, more of a sort of desperate whimper, actually. And while Sydney Powell loves to be a brash freedom fighter in public and in her safe space on Telegram, she is clearly shitting herself at the prospect of this lawsuit, and uh, so she should. It's looking pretty fucking grim for her. Yeah, Trump's former lawyer and general clusterfuck of pseudo-legal psychosis, Sidney Powell, has begun her defense this week by heavily walking backwards on her claims of electoral fraud. I mean, she is moonwalking on this shit. Yeah. Generally known as the Fox News defense, where they might need to uh, revisit soon because Mm. uh, they've got their own little love letter from Dominion uh, containing a subpoena. She's filed a motion to dismiss the case based on the idea that no reasonable person <laughs> would conclude that the statements were truly statements of fact, which is so good. It's a pretty good line. I mean, like, it's it's got to work. Well, I, I was lying then and I might be lying now. Hell of a defence. One, one, hell of a defence. I really like it. I think it's got legs. But uh, unfortunately, it would appear that there's about 75 million Americans that could be described quite loosely as unreasonable. Yeah, there is that. And Powell is in especially deep shit because she's the one that made up the whole Hugo Chavez thing about Dominion being in the pocket of big Venezuela with orders coming down from the heavens above. Maybe her defence might actually work because this claim 
was batshit crazy. Yeah, it really was. They are also, predictably, shooting for a First Amendment get-out-of-jail-free card. And it goes along the lines of, it was clear to reasonable persons, that thing again, whoops, (laughs) uh, that Powell's claims were her opinions and legal theories. She was just putting it out there. Well, legal theory is what, from a textbook? Of <laughs> utmost public concern, which is interesting considering that it's meant to be unreasonable. Anyway, the legal motion then uh, continues to say, those members of the public who were interested in the controversy were free to and did review the evidence and reach their own conclusions or awaited resolution of the matter by the courts before making up their minds. Mm, okay. so, so they are basic, basically using, well, we told them, just to do their own research as a legal defence. You know, what could possibly go wrong with that? Uh, Powell <laughs> went out of the courtroom and on her safe space in Telegram, basically rendered all this useless by saying, "My oh, the fake news is lying to everyone about our filings in the Dominion case. Mm-hmm. My position has not changed. We will be taking them to the mass. Dragging out the Kraken again, maybe. Mm. It's not fake news, though. Uh, this is b- verbatim from the filings, you know, that she's that she's made, her defence. That she's made. made. Mm. Yeah, this is, this is direct from the black and white. Now, Powell jumped the gun here with the motion to dismiss the claim, but mm. I can imagine this is because she can't sleep it's at night. It's just straight out procedural. Like, it's just straight out procedural. Complete ruin. I mean, like, you would not be sleeping well knowing that there is a $1.3 billion <laughs> lawsuit, which is pretty, like, Pretty likely to win on top of your head. 1.3 billion US, I must say, Joel. 1.6 billion uh, to uh, poor slobs like like us in Australia. What, in Monopoly money? (laughs) So, essentially, we've got tons of these lawsuits to come. Rudy Giuliani is still waiting for his court date. Mike Lindell is still waiting in the wings. The much less funny Fox News crew lawsuits. I'm not really cutting your shit about that. They're really boring. Lou Dobbs, those sort of guys, they're awaiting their demise. I'm sure Uncle Rupert will pay the bill. But- they backtracked a bit on, on on air. They were like, they were, you know, like, oh no, no, we didn't mean it. But the cherry <laughs> on the Dominion cake, and this is the one that I want to follow. But like, it seems to have hit a bit of a cul-de-sac. It appears that Melissa Carone has not been given a no. subpoena. Massive no. disappointment, proving mm. the American way of responding to a cease and desist letter by publicly saying, "How about you go fuck yourself?" Can actually work. I'm going to say it. God bless America. No. Well, I think it's got more to do with the fact that Melissa hasn't got two bob to rub together. And yes. uh, therefore, they're going to have a lot of trouble chasing out that 1.3 billion US. But it would have been funny. Yeah, but what's the point, you know? What are we going to do? Take your trailer park? <laughs> or take the trailer, you know, out of the trailer park? And uh, I think she's renting. Yeah, I'm pretty sure she's renting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure well- she is renting. But in other in other news, uh, we discovered this week that uh, YouTube censorship robots need a bit of WD forty. When we were accused and reprimanded for yes. spreading false information regarding claims of electoral fraud in the US, General Christ, fuckers, it's now, ridiculous. Say, saying that string of words is almost certainly going to result in another write up because they're idiot robots can't tell sarcasm, can't determine sarcasm and have very itchy trigger fingers of their own or trigger buttons, Uh, whatever robots pull triggers with. They probably pull triggers. They're probably trying to pull triggers. They're doing fucking something because we keep on getting flagged. It's bullshit. (laughs) It's total bullshit. This time the big tech bastards didn't delete the video permanently on a successful appeal, but the fact that a good portion of our podcast revolves around the idea of mocking these people mercilessly and then we get fucking – and we get taken to the shunting yards (laughs) for fucking pushing election fraud claims. Uh, No – 
Like, what? We're taking the piss out of these people. YouTube robots. Fuck you, YouTube okay. robots. You fucking I, scumbag robots. It's hard to know where to kill them. I, I actually think Hawkins might have been right. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and robots will kill us. They're certainly killing yep. me right now. They're killing us. They're killing our chances of becoming clout chasers. It's bullshit. So I think my theory is that we're just not funny. So the robots <laughs> detect good humor and we're just like not very good. Damn so that's you, that's damn yeah. you, YouTube, YouTube well, robots. You know, uh, the YouTube, talent, YouTube strikes keep coming huh? and we're going to be crying about big tech censorship to everyone that will listen, which isn't many because we're not funny. Uh, and then we will ask for donations, which won't be much. No, no, we really need to find a better grift, Jack. This is getting a bit tired. Well, I am working on a couple of things at the moment, Joe, but we that- won't talk about those right now yeah. because uh, there's very strange news coming from the United States. Yeah, this one seemed to slip under the radar a bit, Jack, but uh, you sent this to me and I'm absolutely dying to know more about what actually happened. But what's what do we know so far? Uh, this very much smells of red-pilled lunacy. In Lubbock, Texas, earlier this week, a 66-year-old man named Larry Harris, who looks a lot like a mix between Ted Kaczynski and Saddam Hussein, put a gun on some unarmed National Guard soldiers transporting the coronavirus vaccine. Harris had been trying to run the vans off the road and did some proper action movie shit to, to get the vans to stop. He then ordered the 11 soldiers out of the vans at gunpoint and claimed he was a detective for the local wallopers. And local police rejected this claim and decided to arrest him where he has stayed at the pleasure of, uh, well, who's the, uh, the pleasure? In the, I guess the governor. There's no yes. majesty. No. He's, the, he's there at the pleasure of the governor. Yes, probably pleasuring the governor. <laughs> in Texas, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's a good yeah, looking you chap. Know. You never know. No. Anyway, the fucking lunatic appears to have missed the obvious conspiracy link, which is that the vans were full of microchip coronavirus vaccine and gone old school. He figured that the van was full of kidnapped kids. Oh, Either way, classic. they definitely made this guy take the MAGA hat off uh, for the mugshot, telling people on the internet that everyone is a pedophile is going to ensure that bizarre stunts like this just keep happening. And while it's pretty juicy that he held up vans transporting the vaccine, that seems like a fun coincidence, but he was going to save the kids oh, because bless. Trump told him to, I guess. Mm-hmm. What a fucking world we live in, Joel. And in other logistics news. Yep, the world of global shipping is up in arms due to a very fucking big boat blocking the Suez Canal <laughs> in Egypt. Apparently due to high winds, the very big vessel took a little bit of a spin and found itself stuck nope. having run into the ground in what is a bizarrely narrow waterway. It's a little bit terrifying that our global supply chains rely on a tiny lake that passes through Egypt, it's, about the uh, size of your pool. It's yeah, it's not. Uh, it's probably a little smaller than my pool, actually. It's, uh, it's uh, terrifyingly tiny. narrow, and probably responsible for about forty percent of the world's commerce. These are those things that really highlight certain things you didn't know, and you sort of didn't want to know. I don't want to know <laughs> that we are relying for our food uh, by this. So look. It's a bit of a worry. I'm not saying you should buy a shotgun and some canned foods, but I'm also not saying you shouldn't. Well, look, uh, it has led to uh, some round the Cape of Good Hope stands emerging on the internet, which is a really strange thing all of itself. People are going, you beauty, we're back on the Cape of Good Hope with all those storms and... And shipwrecks, yes. Maybe the Cape of Good Hope being the detour that they're going to have to do around Africa where a lot of, like, exactly, a lot of very quick rubber duckies uh, are laden with 
AK-47-armed <laughs> lunatics are going to be having well, a fucking field day. Now that we mention this, uh, it's the Somalian pirates I feel sorry for. Things are going to be a bit quiet uh, around the Somalian coast with the sewers. Yeah, they're going to be out of business. Mm. Oh, poor bastards. Yeah. Oh, that's, uh, Tough. It's uh, <laughs> ebbs and flows, mate. They're on, they're on lockdown. So this- essentially mm. – yeah, well, the last time this happened was in 2017 with a Japanese ship that had the decency to be back in motion in just a few hours. So we are <laughs> in one. essentially uncharted waters. Uh-oh. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's really, really terrible joke, dude. Yeah, that's pretty uh, shit. Uh, they are charted waters, by the way. You can see them on a fucking map. Uh, this has <laughs> uh, led to a global shipping nightmare and a lot of memes on the internet. It has also led to some very, very funny conspiracy theories involving the usual suspects, our good friends. Uh, the idea that a really big ship could just get stuck in a narrow canal just isn't enough for some people. So how does that playing out, Joel? All right, so here goes nothing, literally nothing. This is all bullshit. The shipping company that owns the boat is called Evergreen. That is Uh true. Evergreen was a Secret Service nickname for the one and only Hillary Rodham Clinton, and that is also true. There's not much truth in this one, but those things are real. They check out. Mm -hmm. Idiots online are saying the boat is called Evergreen, but it's actually called Evergiven, and all their boats are named similarly. It's like Ever something. It starts with the G. It's like a naming convention. Uh. But the Evergreen thing has QAnon Cox hard, (laughs) real hard. You can see the little little bones protruding from their boxer shorts. I mean, they are so fucking wet over this. So- the boat's call sign is H3RC, and this Uh-oh. is the piece de resistance. Mm. HRC, Hillary Rodham Clinton. Now, I'm not getting pilled by this. I'm not sitting here thinking this is a fucking conspiracy, but I do like that. It and is, I am. It is. It is pretty my, funny. It my is. antennas are pinging from that. I really like it. So the QAnon bread bakers are taking the crumbs and take, you know, making the good shit from yeah, it. Yeah. You know, this Whipping this has up. become a fucking panko schnitzel. But there's a whole bunch of lunatic links made to Q drops from ages ago that mean fucking nothing. Something about Rotterdam being a sister city to yeah. Baltimore which has something to do with the sum of all fears, like a movie with I think Ben Affleck was in it. Like it makes no sense to me. And honestly, mm. I spent a lot of time looking up bullshit on this uh, for the podcast. <laughs> I'm not I'm not going to get into the rabbit hole. I'm just it fucking seems, not. It seems a stretch. Yeah, I just can't be bothered. I mean, like it's just too much filtering through telegram groups to find why the sum of all fears is it, it linked by some like 45-year-old lunatic in fucking like, you know, Alabama. But they're also saying that Rotterdam is a central location for human trafficking, which I don't know, may or may not be true. But the chance of them just like inserting this in just for funsies because it backs up their ridiculous fucking fan fiction story is Baltimore. Huge. Baltimore Baltimore cops are rappers for, for no good reason, just because it's a sister city to Rotterdam. Yeah, exactly. And it's got its own problem. Watch The Wire. Watch every single episode in order. <laughs> or, or, or backwards. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's actually funny because this whole thing is linked to a fire in a place called Evergreen Court Home for Adults. Yeah, sure that. It seems to be linked to this by having the name Evergreen. I don't get that. This is not a revelation. This is not <laughs> something that's amazing. It's a fucking nursing home. But just like watching The Wire backwards, this is maybe some sort of Benjamin Button thing where like maybe. we're torching old guys yeah. and trafficking kids. Like, I don't know. The other thing is, is the boats apparently coming to the rescue are named Baraka One <laughs> and Mossaid. Baraka B A R A C K A One. Close enough. And Mossaid M O S A E D, which well, I'm guessing, like, has the cabal got some sudden dyslexia yeah, and just go. like fucking up the names? What happened to their symbolism being their downfall? Close I mean, enough, get it Joe. right, guys. Close so, enough, Joe. Close enough. Look. 
I'm not going to go and dwell on the details. That's enough. That's all you really need to know because it gets really boring. There's these links, tenuous links between dumb shit. Look it up yourself if you want. DuckDuckGo will have all the good shit. But the links lead to one thing, trafficking the kids. Mm -hmm. According Mm -hmm. to several idiots on the internet who have no real standing in public whatsoever, (laughs) this is either a military operation to save uh-huh. the children, or actual divine intervention. Uh-huh. This is like God's work in front of us. The first source I read said this was God intervening in evil, mm-hmm. but then most people, I think they probably drew the line there and went, oh, maybe we should yeah. pull back on the really crazy <laughs> shit and just go along with the fact that it's a fucking Q team at the behest of the still president, Donald Trump. But essentially, the thing that makes this beautiful, and I love I love that they're back. Oh, I miss them so much. Hillary Clinton and Barry Barack Obama are behind <laughs> the whole fucking thing. I mean, look at the boat names. Look at the call sign. The symbolism. The symbolism yes, will be the devil. Yes, yes, yes. According to these dipshits, the children are going to be rescued and the whole thing will be revealed to the world live on camera. Again. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Just As like the ex- executions that never happened, it's yep. all going to be on TV. Sadly, yep. none of these people own TVs, which is a bit of a problem. As uh, Phanos Paniedes, in a moment of clout-chasing wisdom, told them all to break their tallies with axes. Yep. Uh, but I'll be tuned in for sure, if the footy is or not. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, footy permitting. Footy. Also, yeah. uh, Evergreen is apparently a front for human trafficking now, and depending on who you ask, always has been. Uh, which, which means that uh, people like our mate in Texas holding up the National Guard vans to save the kids are inevitably going to move their fucking lunatic crosshairs towards evergreen container ships, which is just going to be great. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, like, they have enough there with Somali pirates and fucking nightmares on the high seas, and now they're going to have a whole bunch of fucking cretinous rednecks waving fucking Confederate flags, jumping on saying, where are the children? I mean, look... <laughs> The idea that global chipping chains are all just a front for moving kids is because people in this world think their little hobby cult is so important. It, it like it surpasses the importance of say global trade because <laughs> these people are just fucking morons. So look, I just like like I say, I'm not looking forward to. It. I'm, I'm kind of. It'll make a good segment. When all these vessels are hijacked by these morons looking for children in the shipping containers, expecting to have a fucking like a festival when they come back, a big motorcade celebrating them saving the children. No, you're going to go to jail. But that's what death cults do. That's what death cults do. Well, perhaps uh, perhaps there is a bit of hope for uh, our Somalian pirates. I mean, uh, (laughs) they could be intercepting, and they are they could be intercepting. Uh, while uh, some of the QAnon folk uh, are on the boats uh, going to save container ships. Uh, yep, just the a pirates might say, oh, there's, there's some people we can make a bit of hostage money out of. Oh, absolutely. I mean, as much as we don't value them as people, the US will. And we all know the US will pay top dollar for even the most annoying of fucking Oh, they'll hit them with drone. All of hit them with drone attacks, uh, one way or the I'm other, uh, problem solved. Support. Yeah, I fully support that. So, look, and going back to the kids, we were all kids once. Yes. Now, I know going from container ship kids to our own childhoods may be traumatic for some, but I just want to say I was never a child. I refused to believe I was an annoying little fuckwit that did nothing but complain and ask what was for dinner and say irrational things with a small vocabulary. But sometimes when you realize that everyone was just some innocent little kid once upon a time, it makes it even more horrendous to imagine how they got to be a sociopathic killer or, you know, a red pill idiot. 
enter Jack and his encyclopedic knowledge of insane criminal figures. If you want a little bit of prep work on this one, go catch episode five, Monster Children, where Jack talks about the the, 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 the terrible, terrible upbringings, the shitty childhoods that brought them to this point. And honestly, you, you feel a little bit of sympathy for them until you realize they were fucking like mass murderers. But for now... Let's take a week off those lunatics, you know, the red pill ones. And let's look at these lunatics, the ones that are mostly dead, in our true crime deeper dive. Okay, well, like we're, we're doing a deeper dive on some of the most violent bastards I've looked at. Criminals in Australia. Um, I've only met two of them, and one very, very one of those very, very briefly. The others I've studied and, and interviewed uh, people who knew them. Now we don't want to glorify crime or criminals, but these people come. It's almost from another world, uh, a terrifying world. Where if you manage to fall into their orbit, you, you're out in a lot of trouble. Yeah, you don't want to owe these people money. So we have a list of five <laughs> that Jack considers to be the most violent people who've ever set foot in this country. And look, I'm not one to disagree with him. Mm. We don't include serial killers or child killers. That's for the fucking true crime creeps to do. Ooh, they are creepy. terrible people, but mm. they're violent, opportunistic dickheads with fucking pathological bullshit issues. This is more of your, your, your gangster trouble. So yes. the marker for these people we're about to talk about is why they were genuinely feared by their criminal peers. They're gangland figures. They're not the kind of people who would go again, the squareheads, as um, as they like to call them, the normies. Squareheads, yeah, them normies, yeah. They're the sort of men who kill strategically and they kill to boost their fearsome reputations, protect their business interests and generally get, you know, get a foothold and keep a foothold mm. in the bountiful proceeds of crime. These are the sort of men who terrified already terrifying people, which is a mountain of being terrifying. <laughs> yes, indeed it is. And so, look, in order to uh, in order to add a little bit of uh, dramatic uh, <clears throat> uh, a dramatic suspense, or a, a state of suspense. True crime loves that shit. That's yeah. The, uh, I've created a list of five um, that that I've looked at perhaps really closely. Um, and at number five, we have John. Frederick Chow Hayes. Now, Chow was a Sydney gangster, uh, certainly around the same time as Squizzy Taylor, who many uh, listeners (laughs) would know of. There have been fucking operas written about Squizzy Taylor, (laughs) but there's very little been written about Chow Hayes, except for a biography that was written prior to his death. I'll talk about that briefly. But uh, he was born in 1911, a pretty, pretty rough time to be born in Sydney, uh, his father was actually a member of uh, the Light Horse, the Australian Light Horse, and uh, well, he was when when World War One broke out, and off he went, off he went to um, to serve. Uh, Chow Hayes had another male, serious male figure in his life, and that was uh, his grandfather, who died of bubonic plague. So this is, uh, you know, no strong male role uh, model figures for Chow. After the war, by the way, uh, Chow's uh, father was so badly damaged by psychologically by the war that he, the only time Chow saw him was uh, was uh, with his father wearing a straitjacket in an asylum. Oh, 
Brutal. So that's the only time he ever met his father, apparently. It's not perfect. Uh, He started off knocking off a bit of gear in and around Central Station. Uh, He was uh, basically called suburbs like Glebe and uh, Darlinghurst and Surrey Hills, his backyard. Places we can't afford to live now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But in those days, horrific slums. As I said, bubonic plague. There were outbreaks of bubonic plague in Woolloomooloo. Bring out your dad. (laughs) And and, and in the dreadful slums of Frog Hollows in Surrey Hills. Yeah. that have been torn down now, I think, about six times. And I don't know, I'd go looking at, them, looking at them in about five years because they could be slums again. The ghosts. Um, look, Chow uh, is a standover, man. And, and he emerged understanding one thing, that if you were the most violent person in the room, you were going to, you were going to, you know, make a lot of money. And, yeah. and so uh, as an emerging crook, he, he, he bashed one Sydney uh, gangster, more senior in the chain, bashed him mercilessly. Uh, talks about waiting outside for five hours and had taken off his singlet and had wrapped it around a, a metal pole because at this stage they started to become worried about fingerprints. Beat the <laughs> shit out of this guy, uh, Joe Green, his name was, and put him in hospital for about six months. And that was oh. that was when Hayes then he's he's eighteen or nineteen has decided you know he's going to be an, an extremely violent man. He Good. he was responsible for at least five murders that we know of, yeah. uh, and the most famous of these uh, was the murder of Bobby Lee in 1954, and the story is just astonishing. Chow, uh, he had a gang, of course, around him that, that, uh, among other things, they were employed at the two-up school um, in Surrey Hills, uh, and uh, and they were employed as the sort of muscle, Tomo's two-up, it was known as, in various locations around Surrey Hills. Uh, you know, constantly moving. But there was a huge two-up schools where literally thousands of men would gather, particularly on a Thursday night, pay night, and punt on, on two-up. Bobby Lee's men were charged as, as the sort of bouncers. And, and, and uh, you know, if there was a, if there was a punch-up, uh, Bobby, Lee's, Bobby Lee's men would jump in and, and sort out blokes and throw them out. Sort uh, them out, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Chow had a gang. Too, as I say, but Chow's job, Chow was paid more, paid another, you know, so that was part of the extortion racket. If there was any trouble of a gun or <laughs> of a gun, gun nature, then, then Chow had come down with the, with the guns. So a bit of a punch up, Bobby Lee would take okay. care of it and his men. Uh, but, uh, if there was, uh, if things got pretty serious, then Chow would come down with the guns. Um, and, and Chow's gang was at uh, Tomo's two up and Bobby Lee's men ripped into them, gave them a bit of a touch up, a bit of a hiding. Uh, and, uh, Bobby Lee would have known this. He was a boxer himself and a bit of a heavy and, uh, he, um, um, he, he realised that Chow Hayes would retaliate because he always did at the at the slight, not so much the injury that some of his uh, gang got, but the, at the slight, you know, the personal slight that he'd received from Bobby Lee. So so they were, you know, men that had basically decided to go toe-to-toe and, and Bobby Lee got in first, or he tried to, uh, and went around to Hayes' uh, home in Glebe uh, with a gun. Uh, it was either Bobby Lee or one of his men, um, 
uh, and they looked inside. Let's say it was Bobby Lee. We, we certainly did in a, in a television program. It may have been one of his henchmen, but we'll stick with the fact that it was Bobby Lee. Looked into yeah. Chow's home through the window, saw a, saw a male figure sitting in front of the radio, listening to the radio in, a, in an easy chair, and let rip and shot the bloke dead. But it wasn't Chow Hayes. That was Chow Hayes' home. Yep. It was, um, was in fact, um, uh, Chow Hayes' nephew. Yeah, and King, um, King don't miss. He's shot dead. So so Bobby Lee realizes then that he's in terrible trouble. He goes into hiding. I've seen photographs of the funeral of Hayes' nephew, and there are women just wailing at at the cemetery, and Chow's just standing on his own with this look on his face, like he's a, yeah. he's about to he's about to go nuts. At this stage, nineteen fifty four, he's come to the end of really thirty years as a violent standover man, uh, and and he knows that he has to there has to be retribution. <clears throat> yeah, you can't let this slip. Can't let this go at all. So they put out the feelers. Uh, Hayes and his men pulled out the feelers. Where's Bobby Lee? Where's Bobby Lee? Let us know where Bobby Bobby Lee is. And about six weeks go by from after the shooting of the nephew, and uh, and and Chow takes a call at his home, and uh, he's told that Bobby Lee is going to be That's in a night right. at a nightclub in, in Market yeah. Street in the CBD. Um, the um, the nightclub is an interesting one. Just just briefly, it was a, it was a drag act, and even in those days in Sydney, nineteen fifty four, these things were um, very popular. Um, uh, and and you know, sort of Sydney was one of those cities that was uh, well, homosexuality was illegal and so forth. There were still pubs and places where homosexual men could meet. And it was sort of, you know, everything was looked, everyone looked the other way. But it is an, an yeah. interesting thing because Sydney was like this and, and Melbourne and Brisbane weren't. Anyway, so they, they, um, they're, they're, they're ready to go and, and, and kill Bobby Lee uh, <coughs> at this club. And um, Hayes rings up his offsider, and that, that's a bloke by the name of Joey Hollerbone. Uh, and uh, he says, you know, we're going to go and sort out Bobby Lee once and for all tonight and get around here at, you know, 8 o'clock and we'll get down there. So uh, uh, Joey Holobane, uh, unbeknownst to Chow, Joey Holobane's wife thinks Joey Holobane is having an affair and she's very, very worried about it. And, and when she asked Joey, Joey Holobane, where are you going? He said, well, we're going to the, uh, going to the club. We're going to, to go to a nightclub, Chow and I. And he said, well, I'm coming too. You've got to take me. Because he starts oh, putting no. it on that, you know, you're having this affair and I don't believe you anymore. Oh. I'm coming with you. And so she goes, uh, so she's in the car with Joey. <laughs> they pull up outside <laughs> Chow Hay's place. Chow Hay's wife uh, looks out and she says, well, if, if she's going, I'm going oh, too. Oh, for fuck's sake. So the four of them arrive at this club oh. in Market Street. This is frustrating. Uh, it's a downstairs club. So they, they moved downstairs. There's about 70 people there and, and the four of them are sitting having a drink and Chow is basically glaring at Bobby Lee. Bobby Lee's there. Bobby Lee's talking to about six or eight men at another table. And Chow's just glaring at him, and on the other side, from the other side of the room, Bobby Lee, Bobby Lee knew he was there, and, and, and Bobby Lee was sort of glaring back and and giving him shit. And uh, Chow just said to Holloway, he said, 
You take the women outside, and I'll sort this out now. So he and, and Chow walked across the room, and he approached Bobby Lee. And Bobby Lee, these are this is these are the most famous last words of of any Australian criminal. Bobby <laughs> Lee says to Chow Hayes, "You're not going to shoot me in front of all these people, Chow." <laughs> <laughs> and Chow just goes bang, 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 bang. Oh, blows is... him off his chair and then sits over him and empties the rest of it into him. And then it's just pandemonium. And they all run away. Everyone everyone in the club disappears. Of yeah, the 70 yeah, or 80 people around. that were there that night, not one of them would come forward to give evidence against Chow Hayes. There were two criminal trials that, that uh, led to mistrials or hung juries. And, and then finally uh, the uh, corrupt... New South Wales Police Officer Ray Kelly says to Chow, I'm going to charge your wife if you don't plead guilty. And Chow finally does Ooh, and wow, pleads pleads guilty because he was he was uh, um, terrified that his wife would be charged with being an accessory after the fact of the murder. And um, uh, so he pleads guilty uh, and uh, is sentenced to hang uh, after his many, many uh, run-ins with the law, uh, many minor jail sentences. He's basically sentenced to hang. He doesn't hang, of course, because the, the New South Wales Labor government um, uh, uh, repealed uh, capital punishment in the fifties, and uh, and Bill Leake, who painted who painted the portrait, the portrait sits on my wall. Chow Hayes, it does looking over terrifying. me. Uh, it's vaguely terrifying. You don't it's look really at, intense. You don't look at that portrait and say, "There's a kindly old man." He has you know? shark's eyes. Yeah. shark's eyes. They're dead. Liz- dead eyes. De- anyway, De- Bill Leake described him as like a lizard that that he would only blink every yeah. sort of ten seconds or yeah, so, you yeah, know, once, yeah. and that, that was about right. it. Uh, but um, uh, so so he didn't hang. Uh, Bill did ask him. He said, yeah, "You ever had any sort of political leanings?" He goes, "Well, no, nah, never." Voted in my life, but I got to, you know, I got to love the Labor Party who just <laughs> <laughs> said spared him, you know, spared him the trapdoor. Very, very. Um, he I started, believe later when he was asked whether he deserved to hang, he said probably. Oh, look, there's so many great stories about Chow, um, uh, just incredible stuff. He he ended up just becoming a sort of sad old man in prison uh, to a large yeah. degree. He, he did 20 years for the murder of Bobby Lee, gets out in the 1970s, has no skills, I mean, in this in this yeah. new world. And, and so his, his way of making money was to he'd go to a sort of local TAB and just stand there and walk up to people and go, give me 50 bucks. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. was that was. But was his, he old now? Like you know, <laughs> but he's old. He's, but he's old and useless. He, Shit he, needs. he goes to jail again after glassing a young bloke in a pub and gets another oh. four or five years, and then he gets out in 1977. Uh, his story becomes becomes told because he'd been this you know gangster figure really from the 1920s all the way into into the mid-1950s where, where he goes away uh, for, for his biggest jail. Um, yeah, just an extraordinary character that tells, uh, you know, an, a, an amazing story of Sydney and just how tough it was. Yeah. So I that's, nothing to do with it. That's I like Sydney f- now. I, I can't afford to live here, but at least I'm not being fucking harangued and shot. I guarantee you. stood over. I guarantee you that part of Sydney is now a lot nicer than it used to be. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> um, look, that's uh, that's number five, John Frederick Chowhay's extraordinary character. I could talk about him all day. Uh, number four is Christopher Dale Flannery Rentikill, uh, an extraordinary bloke, uh, a, a contract killer. 
Uh, Chow Hayes was a standover man. Uh, Christopher Dale Flannery is a contract killer. He was born in 1948. He was the youngest of um, uh, of three children. His brother went on to become a lawyer and and very very well respected, particularly the trade, trade, Victorian Trades Hall Council. Oh, okay. uh, his uh, his sister was a nurse. These are both really useful. You got the nurse to patch people up. You've got the fucking lawyer to get you out of trouble. I mean, yeah, this yeah. is a great outfit. And he did. He sort of did did use them, but they, they were clean skins. <laughs> he, he, uh, yeah. the lawyer in particular. Uh, his Square brother, heads. his brother Peter, the lawyer in particular. Um, uh, Flannery, well, as being the youngest, his his father left the home. He's not the father was known to be a very violent human being, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and when. Uh, when he uh, took off, and, and I think the story goes that the mother, who was an Irish woman, very, very strong woman, um, punted him out of the house because he's a violent, drunken bastard. But it, it, put, awesome. it put Flannery on a, you know, as a teenager, in a, on a bit of a, you know, sort of youth crime spree, knocking off um, stuff out of shops and, and yeah. gets done for motor vehicle theft. He goes down as a youth to uh, the Morning Star. <clears throat> Uh, the Morning Star youth, uh, um, a youth. Oh, it's not a hostel. I mean, it was a, it was a yeah. youth incarceration centre run. It's by not the, a backpackers. Yeah, run run by the Franciscan monks and, and shittest backpackers ever. He's known he's known to have been sexually assaulted there. So by the time he's fifteen and uh, he's he's you know gone off the deep end. He's been raped by a priest, and we know this because he he told some of his peers about this in Pentridge later later on. Yeah, um, Flannery. Um, by the time he's nineteen, he's convicted of rape, and he goes Jeez. to jail for a for a fair time there, um, uh, and meets everyone in jail. He, he oh good. He goes into Pentridge, uh, and then because of misbehaviour, he he goes into H Division, and this is another really incredible thing about him. He refuses to take. Um, any nonsense from from the guards in H Division who were just brutal sadists, and uh, yeah, uh, he went on strike. Basically, took all his oh, clothes off one day right. and yeah. said, uh, "That's it for me. I'm I'm pulling the pin. You can't make me do anything." Pulling it, the pin, good th- pun. Th- yeah, well, through through his through his brother, the, the, the lawyer, um, uh, there were a number of um, well, it, it led to a, a parliamentary inquiry into conditions in H Division. Uh, a number of uh, uh, prison guards were sacked, and wow. the place had to sh- had to you know basically drag itself out of the well out of the, out of the seventeenth century, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, that's uh, right. And so Flannery was regarded a bit of a hero among a lot of prisoners, and there are people that I've spoken to who spent time jail with him, who who hold him in very high esteem on that alone, you know, just his, yep. his sheer courage and bravery. Um, Look, he, he was involved in a number of armed robberies uh, and uh, got pinged for, for a couple of them. Uh, he's yeah. released from jail from the rape and then he gets involved in a number of armed robberies. He gets pinged for a, for a couple of them. And um, and he says to uh, one of his uh, cellmates, look, I'm not very good at robbing banks. I think I'll kill people for a people for a living and that's essentially what he did he committed his first murder that we know of in 1980 it was in 1980 and that formed the basis of a huge criminal trial he was charged for that um but he was ultimately acquitted okay uh he um he had uh, he was then transported up to uh, new south wales where he was charged with another murder that had occurred subsequently uh, and uh, and he was charged with the murder there. He was bailed immediately and put into the 
put into the company of one. Well, we'll say I won't say his name, but his but his senior uh, detective was Roger Rogerson, and Roger Rogerson and, and, and Flannery had been involved earlier on in a in a very violent arrest uh, where Rogerson uh, uh, arrested Flannery. Um, uh, Flannery basically would kill anyone for fifty thousand dollars. That was his. That was and he wouldn't drop his price for anyone. Well, it's back then money too. So like fifty thousand dollars, but yeah, you, know, you could actually buy something for fifty grand back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, now so it's half an hour. Fifty thousand. Look, we know this because uh, he was well. A conversation uh, with Doctor Jeffrey Edelston took place that was recorded uh-huh. on a, from a car phone from his car phone where he was talking to his medical secretary about a young man that he'd just met, which was oh. Christopher Dale Flannery, and Roger yep. Rogerson had done the introductions. And nice. um, Flannery was facing trial for the murder of Ray Loxley, the one that he'd been extradited to New South Wales for. And they were basically trying to work out a way of him avoiding that trial or having it suspended, not to have this particular judge look at it. <clears throat> yeah. Um and so uh, Edelston had been approached uh, because he'd been doing tattoo removal, and um, and and on, in one case at least he had uh, removed the uh, tattoos of, of of a criminal figure in Sydney uh, who was very unhappy with the level of scarring that he that he'd caught right. from the removal, Don't and he'd been threatening people. he'd been threatening Edelston. So Edelston had this conversation with the intros done by Rogerson. He's, yeah. As is Flannery, he said, he's, Flannery says, 50,000, 50,000 to kill him. He says, well, I don't want to kill him. I just want to have him beaten up. He has 10,000. He said, well, that's, that's still, Edelston says to him, that's very expensive. And, uh, and Flannery says, cricket stumps aren't cheap. Not cricket bats, interestingly. It obviously yeah. used cricket stumps as a sort of weapon for beating people up. As it as it stood, that 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 assault never took place. But yeah. uh, Edelston had provided uh, evidence to uh, the court that Flannery couldn't stand trial uh, because of the uh, because of a uh, infection from tattoo removal. A very similar story, and uh, and and Flannery avoided that particular trial and that particular judge. He was subsequently acquitted of the trial a couple of years later, not long before his disappearance, um, because basically the the chief medical officer who was going to give evidence against him had died, uh, and so the was judge it, it died like mysteriously or. No, no, it was well, not that I know of, um, but he'd, he'd he'd passed away in 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 the meantime. Convenient. So all of the evidence against uh, Flannery for the murder of um, Loxley was was. Uh, was uh, well, a lot of it wouldn't stand up. A lot of physical evidence just wouldn't stand up. So he, well, uh, the judge, directed the jury to acquit. Um, Flannery did a number of murders, probably twelve. That sort of figure. It's very difficult to work out, and perhaps we'll explain as we go. Probably the most chilling one, I think, was when he murdered uh, Sarah Smith and Terry Basham in Mwilumba. Uh, they were painters and dockers, or Terry was, and uh, painter and docker who were involved in drug dealing, and they they decided oh. that they were going to help themselves. So they were, you know, set up business on their own. So the people who ran them organised for Flannery to kill them both, so fifty thousand yeah. a head. And when Flannery went around to to their home, he drove from the Gold Coast to Mwilumba. We know this because he was in a restaurant 
He, he met people in a restaurant and then paid for the restaurant bill with his credit card later in the day. In the meantime, he disappears to Mwollomba, having created his alibi, yeah, uh, okay. and um, and then goes to goes to the home of uh, Basham and Smith. Uh, he shoots them both dead. They have a young child, and uh, a child is two years of age, but uh, Flannery uh, doesn't uh, kill the child. He basically puts the child in the cot, uh, and somehow or other, probably from a call from Flannery, uh, Smith's uh, father, the child's grandfather, was alerted and drove down from Brisbane uh, about 24 hours later to um, rescue the child, uh, basically yeah. left yeah. there with his dead parents. Honour among hitmen. Yeah, well, there was a little bit of that. In the end, uh, Flannery well, Flannery was working as a bodyguard for, for uh, George Freeman, um, we are getting into the Sydney Gang Wars in 1984, 85. Now, Flannery is uh, on, on, in January of 1985. There's an attempt on Flannery's life where a gunman comes past and lets rip with an AR, uh, AR-15, an automatic weapon at, at least, and uh, Flannery is actually hit in the webbing of his thumb and, oh. and gets uh, gets a, a nick across the ear. Flannery's out with his daughter and his stepson, they just returned from a club, and his wife, and, uh, and you know, there was a machine gun spray as a car sped past. Uh, uh, Flannery became convinced that uh, the shooter was, a, was another Sydney criminal who I won't name, and basically uh, decided on a revenge. And at that time, um, there were two groups running around. There's Freeman and the old school known as the team, and there was this new group of uh, villains who were uh, wealthy with uh, heroin trafficking money. Um, Flannery ultimately um, spent the last three months of his life in an amphetamine haze. His thumb constantly ached from the bullet wound that he'd sustained in January. Uh, he, is, he is suspected of killing... Uh, a, a, a man by the name of Tony Eustace in April of 1985. Uh, Eustace was shot six times in the back uh, near the Sydney airport, the old Hilton Hotel. Uh, yeah, look, very famous. Thing. Talking about last words there, he was dragged into hospital, Tony Eustace, spaghetti Tony Eustace, sometimes known as... Uh, uh, champagne Tony Eustace. He had a restaurant in Double Bay. He was told as he was dragged into emergency, two police officers approached him and said, tell us who did this, tell us who did this. And Eustace said his his, his last words, fuck off. And, <laughs> and, that, and that was that. He was going to go to the grave not letting on who it was. Sharp, it's always been put on Flannery's, at, at Flannery's feet that he was involved in that murder, but there are other theories about that. Maybe that was the person who did it. Like the guy asked, he's like, fuck off. He's like, but but who who killed? He's like, fuck off. And he's like, but who killed me? Fuck off. The guy's name was fuck but, off. People that I've spoken to who knew Flannery said that he could actually be a very agreeable sort of fellow. He's always really oh, well yeah, dressed. Like, he worked nice at dinner. While, while he was on the run, he, he worked in the menswear department of David Jones' store in Perth. Oh. So he's always well dressed and quite a good looking guy. One bloke I spoke to said, look, he was, a, you know, we were, we were sitting, it was in a club in Double Bay and they were having a drink. And he said, look, he was a really nice guy. 
And then yeah. Flannery's wife turned up and and Flannery just became enraged, you know, and, yeah, then, and then he was just a terrifying human being to be anywhere near. He had sworn a terrible vengeance for the shooting offence at his Arncliffe home in January and he just couldn't be pulled up. The Sydney gang wars were, were underway um, and the really serious, or, or you know, the, the senior figures like McPherson and Freeman and others were living in fear. Uh, no one was doing any business, and uh, and really they figured ultimately that Flannery was the was the one that if he went, everything could calm down again. Um, yep. And so he disappeared on May 9, 1985. Um, yep. He was last seen leaving. Uh, an apartment block uh, in Liverpool Street in the CBD or just outside opposite mm. Hyde Park. And um, and uh, that was the last time he's seen. I, I believe he was murdered by Stan Smith, who we'll get to shortly, uh, and he was murdered at Freeman's home. That's that's pretty much putting the pieces together and talking to very senior police who investigated his uh, a disappearance uh, for the National Crime Authority. That's what they said. That basically yeah. he he went to Freeman's house. Freeman had told him that that uh, he had a machine gun uh, that he wanted him to use uh, and go and wipe out all the all the villains on the other side once and for all. And Flannery went down there. Couldn't start his car uh, in the car park uh, of this apartment block. Um, long story short. Uh, it's likely that he got into a taxi. It's likely that he drove to the airport. It's likely that he rented a car there and um, because he used to. Uh, he used to rent cars from the airport all the time and then he drove to Freeman's house. Ultimately, the car would have been returned. No one's saying anything about it. I actually you know, interviewed a police officer and said, did anyone ever check rental car records at uh, Sydney Airport on that day and no one ever did. Uh, so Flannery just disappeared. You know, that was the way it was. He was basically, you know, I, I believe, shot dead at Freeman's house by Stan Smith, rolled up into a carpet, uh, taken out beyond the heads and dumped. Uh, <clears throat> and that's kind of how Mr. Renekill found his end. He's number four. Gee whiz, this is taking a long time. Number three. <laughs> it's all right. Number as long th- as it's good. Number three. My God, this 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 is a, just a terrible, terrible human being. This is Nick Radev, known as the Bulgarian and sometimes the Russian. He was Bulgarian, not Russian. Uh, before he arrived in Australia, it's likely that he was a wrestler. And the Bulgarians are very strong a for Olympic-type wrestling. Jesus. Not not yet. Hulk Hogan jobs, you know. Uh, okay, okay, okay. And okay. It, it, very often these wrestlers, uh, like um, boxers, are in certainly in, in our in our sort of place, and in you know in British organised crimes, it's often ex-boxers, or in this case, in Bulgaria's case, ex-wrestlers were used as sort of hard men, and yeah. uh, that's likely his background. They know that he'd been in prison in Turkey and in Bulgaria before he arrived in Australia. And he arrived in Australia under very mysterious circumstances. Uh, it um, well, basically, he arrived. He had a significant criminal history in Bulgaria and Turkey, as I say. But he arrived in Australia with a clean sheet. Yeah, clean slate here. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and um, uh, when he arrived, uh, he um, oh, he committed murder almost as soon as he arrived, and that was a sort of identity theft murder. There was a fellow. An actual Russian fellow who worked at the Ford Motor Motor Plant in in Broadmeadows in Melbourne. Uh, okay. And uh, uh, Radev had assumed his identity and committed a number of offences 
in oh, wow. this guy's name. Cheeky. And it was a bit cheeky. And uh, and then the Russian fellow found out about it and confronted him and, well, he's never been seen again. He, he, he basically just didn't turn up for for his scheduled shift at, at Ford and uh, never been seen again. And his name is Sergei. Oh. Uh, and he sort of he sort of looms large after that. Radev was a standover man, uh, and as with Chow Hayes, he, he realised that the more violent, more terrifying he could be, um, uh, you know, the better that would be for him. He was involved. The more money in, he'd make. He, he was involved in major drug trafficking and major su- drug supply. When two police officers were shot dead in Melbourne, the <coughs> Silk Miller murders, uh, the number one uh, suspect, and this was Radev. It turned out not to be Radev, but Radev was under under uh, police, um, uh, <coughs> basically the shadows, the interceptors were looking after him all the time, keeping an eye on him uh, all, all the way through. Um I interviewed a fellow by the name of Sadat Silan, who was a very small, you know, sort of mousy-looking Turkish guy, Turkish-Australian guy who, who ran, a, um, ran a mobile phone business. Uh, I looked into Sadat a fair bit. He had a significant uh, criminal history for fraud-type offences, dishonesty offences, and Sadat fell into the orbit of, of Nick Radev at Loddon Prison in Victoria. He'd arrived on... Uh, for sentencing after some uh, fraud-type offences. And that's where he met Radev. And <coughs> Radev's uh, sidekick at the time, uh, Sam Hayes, who's another nasty piece of work. And they sort of took him under his wing. They took this Sadat Salan under his wing because they realised he had a bit of money or he'd have yeah, access okay. to it. And and even if it's black money. Yeah, yeah. So it basically it was an incredible story of grooming where um, Radev said, look, oh, I need you to buy a car off me and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll borrow some money off you. And, all that. and it was always repaid with interest, those sorts of things, you know. Yeah. So Order amongst thieves. Yeah, well, it was just a develop. It was grooming. It was just a developer. A, um, yeah, that checks out. Yeah, just to develop a, a, a sense of trust with him. They both got out of jail and, and Radev had this habit of ringing up Sadat Salan at midnight and saying, let's come out, let's come out. And Sadat Salan tells stories about going to some disused warehouse and walking in there and there's just Russian guys everywhere and there's suits, stolen suits, Hugo Boss, Armani, suits? all that sort of stuff. What a bizarre uh, thing to steal. Yeah. Uh, oh, well, it's, it's, it's quite lucrative really. You can... You know, a fifteen hundred dollar suit or three thousand yeah. dollar suit you can yeah. you can sell for for five hundred. Um, yeah. And so anything that's not nailed to the floor, I suppose. Well, that's right. These these are guys with thieves. So so basically, Sadat told that story. He said he went back to that warehouse the following day and everything, just, everything was gone. There were nothing. Was yeah. there. And, and they were sort of Russian mobsters, and Rad, Radev was sort of in with them. Um, uh, Sadat Salan tells another story of Radev picking him up in his Mercedes, in his two-door Mercedes, SL500 Mercedes, and uh, and saying, let's go for a run. And, you know, Nick Rodev used to drink um, uh, used to drink brandy, used to drink, um, 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 uh, <clears throat> the, you know, the, the, the best brandy, connoisseur brandy that you could you know, that you could that, that Isn't you could that buy. cognac? Cognac, sorry, yes. He was a big cognac man. <laughs> Good brandy's cognac, right? 
Yeah, so he's drinking $300, $400 bottles of cognac and he'd drink two at a time. It, you know, basically they're driving down the road. He's had two and a, two two bottles of cognac and a bottle of scotch Jesus. and driving down the Tullamarine Freeway in this very fast car, doing about 180 kilometres per hour, so oh, that's Salon reckons. They get Walk pulled over by the police. Radever's got with him an unlicensed pistol. He's got uh, uh, half an ounce of Coke. He's shit-faced drunk, and the two sort of traffic guys sort of wander up to the one. One of them wanders up to the car and he said, you know, do you have any idea how fast you were going, sir? And he said, well, I haven't got a fucking clue because I'm fucking shit-faced. <laughs> and, and so they go, the oh, okay, we better go and – Better go and ring this one through. And, and so that's the land describes how they're just basically waiting there for about half an hour on the shoulder of the Tullamarine Freeway. And then finally, finally the guy comes back, you know, rather than giving him a fake licence, they'd run it, run it through. And um, and they were waiting for a good half an hour and then they came back and just handed him his licence. You know, you can just go, sir. <laughs> All right then, sir, just, just keep an eye on that, you know, speed there. Yeah. Half, a, half an ounce of coke in the car, gun, stuff to, enough stuff to get you put away for at least a year. But It does um, look like a fun night, though. I mean, so guns, that, well, coke, drink. <laughs> so that says, as, the, as they pull away uh, with Radev still driving shit-faced drunk, saying, well, if you ever wondered if you were the subject of a task force, you can stop wondering now. Uh, because the, the traffic blokes have rung up through and they've been told, don't arrest him, don't we know to get him on something really serious. Yeah. And that serious that's, thing would happen. Yeah. So Salon got a call, one another midnight-based call, and Radev said to him, I've got some friends from Russia, want to know about mobile phones, come over and come over and uh, see us. And uh, and they were in a five-star, you know, stay in a five-star hotel. So it was room 708, I think it was, but don't don't quote me on that. And they okay. and so Sedan drops drops over and knocks on the door, room 708, if that was it. And the door opens and there's Russian goons everywhere and they just beat the shit out of him. What? And and Radev Radev's just sitting there with the with the with the hotel um uh, with the hotel dressing gown on, <laughs> cognac, coke, cigar. And he's just holding up a piece of paper that says 120000 That's what you owe me. You owe me $120,000. And I said to Sadat, I said, well, did you owe him that? He said, no, 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 no. But he probably did. Or it was at least, you know, black funds that Sadat had, had, had obtained by fraud and deception. Okay. And Radev wanted it. So they beat him. <laughs> they beat him for nine hours, right? Jesus! And you know, breaking for every now and then to give him a line of coke and then wash him up, you know, clean him up in the bathroom and then send him out again. And right, it was one hundred twenty thousand. He wouldn't even say it. He just hold up the little piece of paper, one hundred twenty thousand. And no, he didn't have a bang crash, bang crash. This went on for hours. They, so that's the land said, I, I, I realised I was never going to get out of there alive unless I said to him, look, I'll give you 20 now, I'll transfer 20 into your, into your account, I'll give you the, the, the 100 in a week. So they let him go, long story short, and so that says, well, in a week I'm going to have to deal with this, right? So yeah. I said, well, why didn't you go to the police? And he said, well, uh, you know, I, 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 that wasn't going to help. Uh, I, I needed to do my own thing. So, so that's the land tells his story where he obtains a firearm, a pistol himself, and he waits for Nick Radev to turn up at his home, which happens promptly in in uh, in a week. And Radev turns up with a pit bull, 
He's got a pit bull on a leash. He's got what his gun do? and his phone down his tracksuit pants and he bangs on the door. The door's open, but the screen door's locked. And so then... Sadat Salan comes up and and pulls the pulls the pulls the pistol on Radev, uh, and through the screen door fires from about a meter away. Empties empties the gun. Eight shots. Bang 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 bang. <laughs> when the dust and noise or cloud of smoke clears, Radev <laughs> has not been hit once, Jeez. not from one of these shots. So. Um, so, uh, uh, but he said, "Look, uh, the the dog was the first one to piss off as soon as he started yeah, firing." Yeah, that's bang. Just- and then, then uh, one of the shots had actually gone across the road and gone into an apartment, gone into a, f- a block of units, and it had whacked oh, cr- whacked on the wall above where this woman and her daughter were sleeping. So she's Jeez. rung the cops. The cops come around. They they arrest Sadat Salan and they tell him. Well, so that's and tells them the story about the torture in the Melbourne Hotel. They go to the room, they do blood tests, and they say, okay, well, your story checks out. Yeah, fair. And this, we want Nick Rudev, and you're going to help us get him. And, and so they arrange to, uh, so that's the arranges another place where they would drop off the money, where, 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 where Rudev would, would come and and collect the money. He says, Sadat Salan says they come from a, an in-law and go to his place and the place is in queue in Melbourne's eastern leafy suburbs. But Radev is given the address, but he goes to the wrong place. You know, there's special operations group <laughs> waiting for a very violent arrest at one house and Radev goes into the house next door. He goes to the wrong oh, place no. and he knocks on the door <laughs> and this little old lady, there he is with his gun, <laughs> His gun and his phone and his tracksuit pants. Just casual. And um and and the old lady, you know, she answered the door, can I help you? <laughs> and that's when the special operations group move in, but they can't shoot him because they're using full metal jackets, it'll just kill her too. So they have a very, very uh, long, tense process where they finally make a violent arrest. So, so that Salan has, has done his job. Uh, he basically, Nick Radev has been arrested, a very, very tense and violent arrest. Um, <clears throat> so that Salan goes on to commit uh, a $2.6 million fraud on the Commonwealth, on the ATO. And, <clears throat> and that perhaps is a story for another time. But all I can tell you is if you're an exporter and you put on your BAS statement that you're owed $180,000, the ATO will pay you in about three days. Or they did Ooh. with Sadat Salan. In the end, the total of fraud total $2.6 million. Um, Jesus. Uh, well, Sadat is a inveterate con artist. He's doing a bit of time <laughs> at the moment as we speak, actually for ripping off a bloke uh, and was uh, jailed for, I think, five years and three months uh, in June 1920. Um, so Radev is in custody and uh, and he's chained to a table, not chained to, but handcuffed to a table, um, and, and he meets for the very first time a, a police detective, a detective senior constable with the organised crime squad, Ben Archbold. As I say, Ben is a lawyer now, uh, in uh, criminal lawyer in in uh, Sydney, I've met him and spoken with him about this uh, on a number of occasions. Um, okay. <clears throat> they 
they're asking Radev all sorts of questions. This is the one they want to put him away for for a very, very long time. And they're looking at his tattoos and they're asking him all sorts of questions. Radev is super violent, spitting and carrying on. Yeah, being a prick. Uh, and um, Archibald says to him, he says, he mentions the first murder that, that Radev has committed when he's arrived, the, the, the Ford worker, Sergei. And, ah, yeah. And he says, I know you did it and I'm going to prove it and I'm going to put you away for it. Uh, and Radev just becomes enraged at that stage. He is subsequently charged with uh, kidnap and abduction type offences and he's locked up, but he gets bail. Yeah. He gets bail, which is one of those really strange things, but he's bailed on the abduction kidnapping charges that relate to Sadat Salant's um, torture. Uh, and um, and he's he's basically sworn to kill Ben Archibald. He, he has taken it upon himself to kill the police officer, Ben Archibald. And this begins a sort of terrifying months-long process for, for Ben where he sleeps in a different house every night with a gun under his pillow. Um, As you would. Well, because they, Nick, these these aren't empty threats. This is Nick Radev, you know. This this guy's going to come after him. And one of the sort of the, the side stories is is the failure of the Victoria Police Force to properly protect Ben, uh, and it goes on. But um, Archbold uh, is is terrified, uh, and um, I, I interviewed Ben's father, Peter, who is a publican in Turak. And um, he told the story. Uh, he told the story of how Radev came into Peter Archbold's pub looking for Ben, uh, and you know um, Radev was there handing him hundred dollar notes to put into the TAB machine and saying, "Where's your son? Is your son here?" He said, well, "No, he's not here. He doesn't live here." And uh, he knew it was you know, something very dangerous. So Radev eventually leaves, and from a telephone intercept. Uh, uh, that we know of, uh, Radev got onto the phone to a uh, Western Australian criminal, well-known drug dealer, and uh, and tells him uh, that he has that he had well he has a hand grenade in his pocket, and he was going to let rip if Archbold had been Ben had been in the pub in Peter's pub, his father's pub, he would have let rip with a handgun uh, with a hand grenade. Oh. So, so that's the sort of violent human being he was. When his end came, it came through sheer greed, of course. Um, he was very, very keen, always keen, constantly asking. Um, Carl Williams, who was the pill king of Melbourne at the time, who's your cook? When do I get to meet your cook? I want to meet your cook. When do I get to meet him? And uh, and and Carl knows what that's all about. He he knows he's going to basically Radev's just going to abduct his cook and and have him cooking there, um, and, and having cooked for for Nick instead. Um, basically, Williams tired of it. And uh, and he basically arranged for for Radev to be murdered, and and the way in which to get Radev going in one particular place was to say, okay, you can come and meet the cook today. So Radev, yeah, yeah, okay. Radev, Radev and Williams leave a cafe in in Brighton, and uh, they head to Coburg, uh, and Radev gets out of the car. There were two of his sidekicks there uh, as well. Um, uh, a car sped past and shot him dead just uh, just as he was in the front yard of this home in Coburg. 
uh, shot him multiple times. Uh, I could name the people in the car. One of them was Benji Venyman. The other I cannot name. He is still named suppressed by the su- Supreme Court. But anyway, oh. um, has been shot dead, um, believing that he was going to be meeting Carl Williams' court. Carl Williams and his father, they're both dead now. They were around the corner yeah. watching it from another car. And finally, this horrible human being, Nick Radev, was finally dead dead and his two sidekicks see him shot dead in the front yard of this house and they look at each other and go we know where his money Uh is and so they just just jump in the car and go and rob him blind Uh, he's dead of course so he's not going to really he's certainly not going to back up on it no um radev was buried like many of these fucking characters he was he was buried in the fifty thousand dollar um uh, gold-plated uh, coffin, and wow. we, and we would have seen you know, you know students of the Melbourne Gang Wars would have seen so many of these funerals. Venuman was another one. They all had the gold-plated fifty thousand dollar coffins, and they all yeah. had huge crowds there. But when Rudev died, there are only a handful of people, you really, know, three or four people, <laughs> really. Old Nicky Nomad. So despised, feared, and then when dead, despised. And so, yeah, so they could barely get the pool uh, bearers, you know, and you need quite a few of them for the $50,000 gold-plated coffin. Yeah, fucking (laughs) You can't just do that with four blacks. Um, So they they could barely get the pool bearers together for Nick uh, Radev, such a fucking horrible human being was. Um, That's pretty sad. And now, look, I guess if if nothing else, that that, that proves the crime doesn't pay. Um, but uh, well, not not in friends. You can't. Yes, <laughs> with Nick Radev, you it can, gets you a gold plated fucking coffin, though. Well, yeah, but but you know, crime doesn't. I pay. I don't have one of those. Crime doesn't pay, but uh, in the case of Nick Radev, he did save a few bob on the catering. Because, yes, <laughs> because there were not that there many. Was no at his fucking funeral. there. This is a bloke who, while standing over a sunshine drug dealer, went to his home while this man's wife and children were there and raped this fellow in front of him. Oh, Jesus. This is a horrible, horrible human being uh, who just decided he would be more violent than anybody else. And in the end, he he, he copped his right whack in Queen Street, Coburg, on the 15th of April 2003. Now, we have two to go. Listeners, we have two more to go and we are not going to rush this. We want to talk about these people. In, We're in, going to take our dear sweet time. Dear we sweet could time not quite get through the full fight. horrible these people were. We two have, more. We have done, yes, we've done John John Frederick Chowhays, Christopher Dale Flannery, Rent-A-Kill, oh, and Rent-A-Kill. Nick the yeah. Bulgarian, Radev. Well, we've got two more left. Uh, we've got two to we're go. We're going to get there. And we're, going, we're going to get there. We're going to do that. We're going to, um, we're going to really... Sad. We're going to let you. We're going to let you be a bit upset. We're going to say to be continued. We've done it again. We it's have. Again. We have. It is a shame. Well, but we don't want you. We don't want you sitting and listening for four hours of me babbling away. So we're going to get to me babbling away for another hour or so next week. And I week. have to fucking edit this too. So I'm gonna. I'm gonna go and lick my wounds. So basically, we've got the two yet to come. Two and yet speaking to come. of yet to come, we move to Eric Trump because he knows how sex works in theory. <laughs> But after hearing his dad talk about it with his mates, he's never quite got there. Lara, his wife, is eternally thankful for this. After seeing the disappointment in Donald's face when speaking of Eric, she doesn't want a mistake of her own. The Bill no. man has much better genes. But Eric 
oblivious to the entire thing, just keeps on trucking on, just just keeps on going. And despite his challenges, he just gets by. He gets by <laughs> a lot like a, lot like a bastard, bastard on, on Father's, Father's Day. Day. Excellent news this week for Eric Trump. Uh, look, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but Eric, the idiot fail son of the 45th President of the United States of America, might soon be Eric Trump, wife of Senator for North Carolina, Lara Trump. Ooh. We haven't spoken much about Eric's wife, Lara, but she's a good sort, not a vicious Islamophobic racist at all, and that's because Islam is not a race. It's a religion. Uh, that's good. It's a that's trick good. question. That's good. And Lara is too smart to fall for it. Uh, Eric, who is a good-looking boy, and Lara were chained together literally at a private service at Mar-a-Lago almost 20 years ago now. Yeah, Otherwise, she'd sort of want to run away. Uh, but they've been chained together for a very long time. And the conjugal visits have slowed down in recent times, and that's only because when Eric is on the vinegar, he cries quite a lot and calls out for his dad. Love you, Love dad! dad. <laughs> that's good. It would be a bit disconcerting for anybody, let's face it. But a marriage is not about sexual gratification. No. Eric and Lara remain intimate, but in a different way. Like when Lara pops on three pairs of surgical gloves and smears Eric's back with the ointment to keep his hypertrichosis at bay. Oh, uh, that's uh, werewolf syndrome, listeners. <laughs> uh, daily wax treatments have helped, but Eric has a thick layer of hair covering 90% of his body. Red hair which is unfortunate. And he does piss on the rug no matter how many times Lara takes him out for a walk. Yeah. Now, Lara Trump is a bloody good scout and she only hits Eric with a rolled-up newspaper when they have company and Eric's sitting on the floor licking his freckle. It's not nice and people don't need to see Eric gobbing down his own dags. Oh, he knows it's wrong and he's just being a very naughty boy. And a quick whack around the head with a copy of the fake news Washington Post normally has Eric sitting up straight, and if that doesn't work, he has to go outside and he'll stand at the door whimpering for the rest of the night until Lara can't take it anymore and lets him back in where he'll lie on the floor licking his own nuts. <laughs> and you know that goes, listeners. You would too if you could. Yeah. But Lara's out on her own now, getting into the world of politics. It's Ooh. interesting, isn't it, listeners? When we talk about the next Trump in politics, no one ever talks about Eric, who is a good-looking boy. And Junior would probably be half a chance if he got off the gear for a moment, while Ivanka is a walk-up start. Even yeah. Baron, the oversized sideshow freak of a human being, is considered a prospect if he can just ward off the gigantism for long enough for his face to fit in a poster. <laughs> but it's never point. Eric who is a good-looking boy. It's never Eric. He's always overlooked, and my personal take on that is that it's got a lot more to do than just his leprosy and the autofellatio we talked about mm. before. Mm. Alara, she's a gun and plans to primary in her home state of North Carolina with the full backing of Eric's dad. Love you, Dad! Lara and the Donald have been very close ever since Eric told the Donald he'd met the woman of his dreams, uh, who, thank God, wasn't black, although the Donald thought for a moment she might be Puerto Rican. Ooh, dangerous game. Yeah. But Donald's given the th Lara the thumbs up, and that's a major endorsement. Lara's got the Klan vote stitched up, and really after that it's only a matter of time before we hear the words Senator Lara Trump and oh. his wife, Eric, seen <laughs> here on a, on a leash scratching two places at once. The Trump dynasty is on a roll, listeners, and it, and it can only be good news for Eric, who is a good-looking boy, and he's just trying to be friendly when he humps your leg. 
Oh, bless. Well, we need to give Eric a swift kick up the ass for now. Tell him he's been a very bad boy and rub his nose in it, whatever it is. It, is. it looks oh. like pus, but it kind of smells like shit. Anyway, I'm not sure what it is, but I'll be buggered if I'm going to pay his vet bills again. But we can't worry about that now because it's time to sit back and examine the rise to power of a man described by Paul Keating as... Isn't he that cunt on the cooking show? He is, yeah. He's got the whiff of absolute power up his nostrils, or that could be ketamine. It's hard to tell, but at least he's having a go. It's the weak in Senator-elect. Doesn't that sound great, listeners? The weak in Senator and possibly the greatest Prime Minister this country has never seen. The weak in Pete Evans. that he literally actually cannot be Prime Minister. Just fucking imagine that. Just an envoy to China telling them that they're all corrupt dogs. Yeah, no thanks. Huge week in Pete Evans. Huge. Uh, huge, huge week in Pete Evans. Now, look, I'm guessing he drove down because you've got to wear a, a mask on a plane. And, uh, you know, we all know from pandemic that gives you the COVID with that steely stare she gives. <laughs> it gives you exist. COVID. The autistic children just light up. So whether he flew, drove, or rode an activated armament in, parliamentary Pete took a trip to Canberra. Now, he walked in with Rod Callerton, who is doing his absolute fucking best to channel Bob Ellis by looking <laughs> unkept as fuck and just carrying luggage, which was just something Ellis used to do all the fucking time. It would appear that they were signed into the members' entrance by the one and only Crackers Craig Kelly. Hey, Crackers. Well, yeah, they I'm stopped Gregor. in to have a chat with and uh, posed for a bunch of shit photos. If you look at the one in the lobby with these two, it looks like Cracker Kelly is a hedgehog that just had an orgasm. It's <laughs> really good. <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't know what they discussed as Pete has so far resisted our attempts to microchip him through vaccines. But you can only imagine the painful dialogue between mm. the two. But despite mm. this, according to the New oh, Daily, I don't know how the fuck they found this out, it seems this trip to Canberra is yet another attempt by Rod Callerton to clear his name after getting the arse from Parliament two years ago for larceny charges. And the yeah. bankruptcy. Don't forget We're the bankruptcy, Rod. Don't worry. Don't worry. He's all over that. He wasn't convicted <laughs> for the larceny charge, but the damage was done. It was a, great, a very regrettable moment for old Rod. He got into an argument with a tow truck driver yes, and he threw did. his keys into a ditch. Not a tow truck driver, Joe. I just want to, just want to clarify that. That was actually a collection agent. Uh, and uh, oh. someone, yes, basically the bailiff, and uh, and he and he <laughs> grabbed the keys out of the ignition and and popped them in his pocket for a while. There's the that last conviction funny. there. Well, I mean, it didn't have any conviction, but this doesn't sound like, you know, the sort of like the thing of the larceny is. Mm. It sounds like some sort of random thing. But if you look at larceny in law, it simply requires you it's to exactly grab something is. that isn't yours and mm. move it. It's you exactly know, well, what it is. the cops must have been super keen to charge him. Yeah. yeah. He's clearly ordered a hamburger with a lot, as as you like to say. Mm. And, um, and the cops managed to dish him up, you know, and order a chips, which is his last that he charged. Got well, we talked about we talked about Rod a little while back. He 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 was under con- the High Court ruled that he was under conviction for larceny. They acknowledged that uh, that conviction had been subsequently overturned, but he was under conviction uh, during the campaign and thus was ineligible to stand. And of course, <laughs> then there's the bankruptcy, which and there's the bankruptcy, which we've, as, as we've discussed was. Was current. He's an undischarged bankrupt. Uh, current as of what two weeks ago? Yeah, 
That's the one. That's the one. So mm. basically, you can just imagine the class and finesse of an angry Rod Cullerton <laughs> dealing with the police after having a blue with a guy who I assume, you know, was trying to tow his car. Turns out, collection agent, this mm. is great. I wish I had footage of this, like a sob sit, like, oh, you know, yeah. when they filmed themselves. It's fucking great. So it looks like instead of being a publicity stunt for Pete Evans, it was actually just Rod getting him to lobby people in Canberra to clear his name, like as if Pete Evans is somehow going like, to convince people in Parliament <laughs> to like wave a magic wand and take away his bankruptcy. I don't know what clearing his name involves because you discovered, as you know, mm. as we said, that he's still ineligible for Parliament because he's an undischarged bankrupt. Mm. Like, I mean, that's that. That's it. Uh, it's, it's what can That's you do? It. So how about you clear your name by paying your fucking bills, That's you right. massive grog? Like, yes. Carlton argues that his bankruptcy is in error, but as you discovered, the public register begs to differ. Yes. It's a bit weird. So instead of solving his financial problems like a normal person with some sort of arbitration or maybe sending a fucking check, he's figured that bringing down Big Smile Pete to Canberra might fix it. Like just like. <laughs> I just got to ask you, Joe. Was he wearing shoes? Was was Pete Evans wearing shoes in the parliament? You know what? I hate to say it. He scrubbed up well. And did I he? Fucking hate to say I it. saw. Uh, I saw the photographs, of course. Good. And I did see him with his little yellow visitors pass. You, you and I would have yeah. had visitors passes uh, at the yeah, parliament yeah, over really the journey. Uh, yeah. I don't have uh, one of those things on the lanyard, uh, but uh, he would have had his little visitors pass. And I just saw him sort of. I could just sort of see him thinking, "Have they got a gold one? Have they got a special one? Yeah, just for Pete yeah, Evans? Yeah. I want the special one." Yeah. yeah. I just like. I shudder to think because the access that I used to get to, uh, to Parliament House is fucking terrifying. Like they shouldn't have given it to me. Like I will say that on the record, they should not have given me that access. <laughs> and I'm not going to mention who gave me that access because he's still in Parliament, but. They should not have given Pete Evans unrestricted. He should have got the red one that I got when I when Obama was visiting that just says under escort. You know, just just under <laughs> a watchful right. eye. That'd be better. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so don't let him go anywhere near Aussies. He'd just tear the place apart, wouldn't he? He'd just go oh. look at this crap. This you can't have this. Get some paleo in there. Get some. <laughs> Apparently, he had unsweetened green tea when Craig yes, Kelly had a cappuccino. I saw that. Yeah. Which is adorable. It's actually like it's one of those humanizing things where it annoys me. And Craig was like, he's a green tea guy. I'm a cappuccino guy. We have differences. We come together on certain things. That's I'm like, right. yeah. fuck you for being human. I, I, you know, I, I almost feel like you're a person at this point. And, you know, that, that, no, can't summarize come on, that. Come on, John. None- all Come right, back. let's get on with it. It would appear in Pete's big day, he also met with some tribal people of the Torres Strait. Fucking, why does he? But the thing is, he calls it that because of the OSTF. So in the usual manner, he's being vague as fuck about what this is. And mm. I don't really want to speculate too much on it. There's a million reasons why I don't want to touch that hot fucking sausage. Yeah. But the chances of this being linked to the OSTF, which is the original sovereign tribal federation, uh, headed by a guy named Mick McMurtry, who convinces yeah. poor young kids to say soft shit, sit in court to try and get out of trouble, which gets them in more trouble. We've covered them vaguely before. Um the Aboriginal sovsits, uh, it's just, it's really concerning it the way that's leading because I don't, troubling. it's, that's a recipe for trouble. Um, Pete's, um, Pete's on Pete's on the path, you can tell. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, he's been invited to the Senate, so no problem. He got invited <laughs> to fucking Parliament House and he got in so easily. I mean, how, how hard could it be to get elected? So now, as an addendum to this week in Pete Evans, and it was a huge week, something slipped huge, past me last huge, week. Now, Pete. Who's well known for his casual neo Nazi leanings on social media? You know, he posted a classy meme of two sheep fucking. And now, while mm. Pete usually just mindlessly shares shit like slop in a tray, he started adding comments, which I'm not sure, sure that. if this one is his work, but it looks like something he may have written on his Telegram. Yeah, maybe. It's a dangerous game, Pete. 
your fit seems to fit perfectly in your mouth. The since deleted Telegram post states, do not breed with sheep, which is actually decent advice. Uh, well, I mean, you know, it is, you know, it's illegal and all, yeah. you know, bestiality. Wow. Who let the law get in the way of love? So people who are vaccinated will have modified DNA. This is what it says, right? So Strong yeah. start. This, this yeah. is the actual meme. No one discusses that DNA is passed on to the next generation. Here's a good bit. The risk that your children will marry into other cultures Ooh. is possibly now shadowed by the fact that your child will marry into a COVID-vaxxed gene group, wow. potentially shorting their lives and that of others. Reproduction and sterilization are also another big potential issue. This has not been researched or discussed enough. Ah, wow. 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 So at first it looks like a joke. Don't breed with sheep. Ha ha. Modified DNA. <laughs> so he says he's gone from he's gone from your, your your stock standard racism there to a sort of cellular racism. Um, yes. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's quite terrifying. Yeah. It's, it's bizarre. So I'm I'm not sure uh, at what point this was a good idea. Um, I don't think it was. And, you know, he he deleted the post. Uh, but holy shit, a fucking risk. I mean, like, while it's conditional release program policy to keep spouse and kids out of the frame here, this is a seriously disturbing insight into how he sees his children's future. Like, what happens if they date a black fella? Is he going to go full fash on them? I mean, this is some seriously fucked up commentary. This should not be brushed aside. Like, I missed this, and I can't believe I did. The good lads on Twitter at Cam lives here, and bothering conspiracy theorist at B theorist. Mm. They got on top of this one. I did see the meme, but I scrolled past it. I just saw the sheep thing and thought, "Oh, he's making a sheep joke again." <laughs> Not looking quite close enough between the lines to see the race baiting in there. Pretty damn ugly, yeah. But I would say that he deleted it either because he's worried about the backlash, and someone pointed out, or the fucking himbo just didn't read it properly and shared it. That's plausible as well. I mean, I'll give him plausible deniability. He hangs out in some pretty disgusting circles. So it's unlikely that, you know, well, it's quite likely that some Nazi shit's just going to pop its way in. But pushing the bullshit line that vaccine changes your DNA with this little hint of eugenics yeah, that was on top of the cake <laughs> is exactly how Pete seems to like it because he's a massive cunt. So uh, Paul Keating got that right. Um, uh, he is. Pete sure uh, Evans is actually a cunt. Um, really is. Really, <clears throat> a cunt really from is. that cooking show, uh, although that's not on anymore, so he's just a cunt. <laughs> and you have been listening to the Conditional Release Program with your host, Jack the Insider and Joel Hill. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button, and if you've enjoyed our bullshit, throw us a five-star review on your podcast app. Jack can be found on Twitter on at Jack the Insider and Joel on at Crunchy Moses with a K. We've set up a Facebook page you can find fairly easily, and there's a shitposting mm. group. If you look up Conditional Release Program, shitposting yes, group, you'll find it. You know, you can post us some interesting stuff on there. Yes, you know, it's, it's a good chat. Now, promoting a podcast is easier said than done. Basically, we, you know, stop short of paying people to listen to us. We're just begging. It's much nicer. We're begging, uh, yeah. Share our shit. Tell your friends. Get us out there. We notice we're looking at the numbers and they're bumping up slowly, but you're not doing it fast enough. Get on with it. All right. Yeah, look, I don't want to have to send Joel around to your house where we'll just knock on your front door and then just start begging, you know, and crying quite a lot. And, uh, and, and we just don't need that. You know, it won't be good for his psyche and probably not for yours. So get on with it. You'll see that Eric Trump is loosely revolving around my psyche. <laughs> and finally, all feedback, tips, and death threats should be sent to the conditional release program at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you, even if you're looking after the Dodgers' business interests while he's having a holiday and you want to put two in, our, in both our brain stems. Oh, I'll take one. I'll take one too. That's Thanks, listeners. Catch you next week. Thanks, listeners. See you then.